Welcome back to another episode of Cyberstar Talks podcast. I am Iona. As always, I am so thrilled you're spending your precious time with me and my honored guest. Today's guest is Shainessa Kembrick. Shainessa is an author, speaker, and award-winning cybersecurity innovator with two patents pending and unique subject matter expertise on the intersection of governance, risk, and compliance with IT and application security. She holds a bunch of certifications behind her name, such as CCSP, CISSP, CISM, and CDPSC. Her experience includes designing identity management and governance solutions for cloud-based platforms, building insider threat programs, and consulting on security architecture. As a principal product manager at Microsoft, she's focused on designing solutions and combine artificial intelligence and machine learning to help organizations identify, detect, and respond to emerging threats against digital identity. She currently serves as a task and content advisor for multiple cybersecurity certification bodies, including Cloud Security Alliance and ComTL. Shainessa is the lead author of the best-selling book, Cloud Auditing Best Practices, as well as a contributing author to several other technology books, blogs, and podcasts. Her work has been included in several global IT industry forums, such as RSAC, SANS, IDSP Magazine Podcast, Secure Software Summit, and DevOps.com. As a strong advocate for diversity in cyber, Shainessa volunteers with several nonprofit organizations, including Cloud Girls, ISSA, CloudSec, and as a training lead for the Dallas chapter of Women's Society of Cyberjutsu. Shainessa, welcome to Cyberstar Talks podcast. I'm absolutely honored to have you here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm actually honored to be on the podcast. So thank you for the opportunity. I want to start this conversation by asking, how has it been for you as a woman navigating in the cybersecurity field? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question in that um, I've had a pretty lengthy career and I've seen lots of changes over time. But I'll be honest and say that I don't think we have enough women in cybersecurity as of yet. Um, I still find myself in meetings and in uh, you know organizations and events where I may be one of a few or maybe one of the only um, that are like me. Um, so I think there's more work to be done in bringing women into cybersecurity and embracing more diversity within cybersecurity. And with you know some of the metrics and the numbers that we see about you know cyber attacks and just how many jobs go un. Build, uh, you know, to me that speaks to the need of making sure that we advocate for women understanding um, the value and impact they can have by joining this field. Absolutely, you know, there's still a lack of cybersecurity talents in the market. There are like three million positions still available, and we can't we can't fill all those positions because we haven't tapped into the women talent pool. Exactly. So it's time to do something. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we're lacking is helping people to see how skills they have, um, maybe in a separate career, could translate into cybersecurity, or to see, you know, the the passion and uh, that there's a, a diverse set of opportunities within cybersecurity. Not everybody is an ethical hacker, for example. And I think sometimes when people think of cybersecurity, that's immediately what they go right. to. Um, <laughs> but there's lots of different domains and lots of different fields and lots of different skill sets that we need. And they don't need to code or to be programmers. Exactly. To work in cybersecurity field. 
Chinesa, you have been the lead author for the Cloud Auditing Best Practices book. What inspired you to write it and what are the key insights and takeaways that readers can expect to gain from it? Um, so with this book, what inspired me to write it was that I had a coworker, a um, very close friend, uh, who worked in the compliance field. And she was always asking these questions about how do I know when I assess a cloud environment that, you know, what somebody's telling me is accurate? Um, what are the places that I need to be looking for controls and understand the security of a cloud system? And I couldn't really point her to a book that could help her, you know, answer some of these questions. Um, and I felt like if she was asking these, there's probably others that are in the compliance and auditing field who may be asking something similar. And I, I put that idea, it was in the back of my mind, kind of put it on the shelf and said, maybe one day I'll write a book. Mm -hmm. um, and I was fortunate in that uh, maybe, you know, six months to a year later, someone from Packet reached out to me and asked, um, you know, did I have an idea for a book? And then lo and behold, I did. Um, just because, you know, I had somebody oh, in wow. my life who was very curious about, you know, cloud and cloud security and cloud auditing. Outstanding. Let's talk about cloud services. Uh, with the ever-increasing adoption of cloud services, organizations do clearly benefit from enhanced flexibility, scalability, and cost efficiency. However, migrating infrastructure to the cloud also introduced some unique security challenges. So what are some of the key challenges the organizations might face during this migration process? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things that come to mind for me and actually, you know, touched on this uh, a little bit in the book and that a lot of organizations, even if they don't realize it, they are either multi-cloud or heading towards multi-cloud, right? And so understanding what does that look like from an end-to-end -end perspective and how you secure an identity or secure a service um, when you have multiple touch points and you have these APIs that are driving integration. Um, so really thinking through what does that mean and how do you understand in each environment if there were a vulnerability, if there were a breach, how do you detect it um, you know, before it gets you know, all the way through your system? Um, so having those end-to-end -end security controls and end-to-end -end knowledge of your architecture. Um, the other thing that I think organizations tend to not really think about when they decide to take this journey to move to the cloud is that there may be a bit of your architecture that ends up remaining on-prem. Um, so you get yourself in this hybrid situation and understanding you know, what security tools and security mechanisms you're going to use to understand um, you know, if a breach starts uh, on-prem and moves to the cloud and vice versa, how do you detect those things? And who's on tap to take action? Um, right. Some of the things that yeah, I've experienced is that you know, as companies migrate to cloud environments and roles change, uh, people aren't clear on their responsibilities of who's doing what. Because you know the person who may have been your uh, you know network person on in the on-prem environment may not be doing your network setup in your cloud environment. So just being very clear on roles and responsibilities. Right, and this shared responsibility model is really important to understand. Like cloud service providers follow a shared responsibility model where they secure the underlying infrastructure, and the organization is responsible for securing its data and applications. I think this is uh, something that sometimes is overlooked and companies just end up thinking that, yeah, the cloud provider is in charge for ensuring my security, which is not the case, right? I would definitely agree. That's a, a big call out there. Um, I, I know some organizations get really frustrated in that, you know, maybe something happens in their environment. Um, there's a security attack. There's some type of 
you know, issue that occurs and they're expecting that the cloud provider would have, you know, taken care of that situation or prevented it. Um, but to your point, there's this shared model. And I really like the way that, you know, Google states it as a shared fate. So there's some things that you as the organization need to be responsible for. And then there's some things that the cloud provider will cover. But at the end of the day, uh, if I'm an owner of a cloud environment, it's up to me to make sure that the security controls that I need exactly. to protect my users and data are in place. Exactly, spot on. Mm -hmm. And also on the other hand, encryption and key management, which is right. Uh, right, really, really essential. Managing encryption keys securely can be challenging, especially in the multi-cloud or in hybrid environments. I definitely agree and, uh, you know, Sometimes when people look at cloud and you think about how dynamic it is and maybe you need less people to do certain functions, but you really need to make sure those people have the, the support and the background and the skill sets to manage across these different platforms um, and be able to do it in a way that is effective, but also efficient, I yeah, think is important. Absolutely. Cloud environments uh, do store nowadays vast amounts of sensitive data, such as personal information, PI, PAI data, making them attractive targets for cyber criminals. So a misconfiguration or an inadequate security control can, of course, lead to data breaches. In your experience, what are the most effective strategies for ensuring data privacy and protection in a cloud environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a great question. And for me, the number one thing is actually knowing what data is in your environment and who has access to it. Um, and that may not seem like the, uh, you know, sexiest way to say what's an effective strategy. But if you don't know what's there, then you can't really you know, decide what's the best way to protect it. So that should, to me should be your starting point of knowing what's flowing in your environment and what's flowing out. Spot on. Um, yeah. Data yeah, and I think, right? Yeah, exactly. And that was going to lead me to that point is exactly from there. Once you know what data is, is in your environment, making sure you have a good, strong process for effectively classifying that data and that those classifications stay up to date and relevant. Um, and then using some mechanisms to enforce um, those classifications and who has access based on the classification. And how about... Um... APIs. So can you tell us a little bit more about the how to protect the API and endpoints from unauthorized access? Yeah, uh, to me, this is one of the, the really challenging areas. And um, at the RSA conference this year, I led a birds of a feather session to actually talk about this and, you know, what are organizations doing and thinking when it comes to API access? Because whoever you're integrated to, whatever their security posture is, is essentially your security posture, right? So if they're not taking care of their environment, an attacker can easily use those APIs to write into your environment. Um, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think from there, it, and this is, again, probably not the, the, the sexiest answer, um, but the starting point is having a repository of what APIs are in use and coming up with a process to regularly assess um, are those, who those APIs are connecting to, is that relationship still relevant, um, you know, what data is coming in or going out on those APIs, and what's the security um, mechanisms or controls that you're using around those APIs? Um, Shanessa, as we move toward passwordless authentications, what are the primary benefits and challenges organizations may encounter during this transition? Password, hopefully we we all get there. There's lots of you know benefits to not having to necessarily remember a, a password, but 
here's where I think organizations will get a bit stuck is in change management. Uh, you know, so for years we've told uh, users or, um, you know, individuals that you need a strong password that require has, you know, this number of uh, letters and characters in this length. And um, then we've said, you need to store your password in some password vault. And then now we're saying, no, now it's passwordless. And so I think sometimes we confuse um, people mm -hmm. who are not security savvy with some of these things. So I feel like organizations are going to have a bit of an uphill battle with change management. And what does this mean when we say passwordless? And how are you really protecting my data if I'm not putting in a password? You know, so those things, I, I think, will be big um, call outs. Do you think um, passwordless authentication, such as biometrics or token based methods, can significantly reduce the risk of unauthorized access and data breaches? Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, if you think about verifying you are who you say you are um, and having a strong control that way, that will definitely give you that. Um, again, where I see part of the uphill struggle is if you think about user population may not just be people who are in the working world. Um, you may have, you know, small kids who are playing on an Xbox, for example. And so what does passwordless mean in those scenarios? Um, so we have to think about, you know, what's relevant for each um, situation. Uh, and, and again, like the population, what does that mean to them? Absolutely, valid point. And, and regarding the passwordless authentication, I also think that it's somehow bringing more user convenience, right? Because mm -hmm. it simplifies the logging process for users, leading to a more seamless and user-friendly experience. So users don't need to remember any complex passwords or worry about resetting them anymore. So it will definitely help also this vulnerable category, such as children or elderly, as you as you pointed out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once it gets adopted um, in those segments, I think it will greatly benefit. Um, and I will say that in some scenarios where I have passwordless, um, I haven't had to use a password in over a year and a half, right? So if I were to be asked, you know, what's the password for this system, I wouldn't even know at this point. So yeah, I've, I've gotten used to the convenience. All right. Uh, what about the privacy concerns? So biometric authentication can also raise this privacy concerns for some users as their biometric data needs to be stored and processed somewhere, right? Sometimes, you know, with security, there there can be a bit of a, a trade-off in um, what do you want in terms of convenience and experience versus what do you want in terms of, you know, hardened security. And if you harden things too much, then it becomes unusable in some ways. Inconvenient. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, biometrics and, you know, PI and those types of things, we definitely need to make sure that there's strong security posture in whatever organization is the certifying body um, for that data. Um, we also need to make sure that people have the options of opting out um, where it makes sense so that um, they feel like they have a choice in these things. Uh, to me, it's going to lead to, you know, questions about, you know, uh, encryption and how is that data stored securely um, and translating that into a way that people can understand that, yes, I'm putting in my thumbprint or um, yes, I'm showing my face um, as a measure of verifying who I am. But on the other end of this, this is how this data is secured. And we also have to give up a little bit of our privacy in order to gain more convenience. That's yeah. Yeah. In some cases, I, I think that is true. And to me, it's just like telling the story of, of how does this help? Um, and I think, you know, if 
we look at Apple, for example, and an iPhone, and um, people have readily adopted certain uh, biometric attributes when it comes to that, right? Because they've made it easy. Um, people trust that it's secure. And I think across the board, if we want biometrics to be adopted, we have to kind of go that route. Right. Shanisa, the AI topic is already heating up. And since you are a passionate <laughs> expert about this, I can't help but discuss this with you today. We as a society are giving birth to another form of intelligence, and we don't know yet how it is going to play out. It can be literally everything between utopia and dystopia. Is there anything we can do in your view to make AI have our best interests in mind? To me, this goes to the underlying question of how is this even being created, right? So AI didn't create itself. Um, behind the scenes, there's technology that's built by a human. Um, there's coding that's built by a human. And it, in general, you know, there, there can be biases or there will be biases. Um, so it, it's really important that in these areas that we have a, you know, diverse set of people looking at how AI um, progresses and our guardrails around it so that um, those biases don't translate to, you know, long-term problems um, for society. Because yes, as AI, you know, continues to take shape, uh, there's going to be, I think, a point in time where people just trust things implicitly. And so we need to make sure that if that implicit trust is going to be there, the foundation that this is built on um, works for all segments of society, right? It, it's not built on some biased foundation. Would it be a too naive target if we think that AI may create abundance for humanity? I mean, AI has the potential to tackle the most prominent challenges of humanity, such as cancer treatment or increasing human lifespan. The idea is very compelling, but at the same time, extremely challenging. While the AI has the potential to alleviate real world problems, I think human ego and self-interest can hinder the progress. What is your take on this? Yeah, um, my take is that AI definitely will help or is already helping in solving some large scale problems. You know, things that would take us a long time to figure out, it can identify those patterns and help us to get there faster. Mm -hmm. um, what we need to be cautious with is that, especially, you know, for those of us in cybersecurity, this same efficiency that we're gaining on a positive perspective, um, you know, attackers and, and those who want to do harm are, are getting that same benefit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't foresee us getting to a perfect utopia, but also not a dystopia as well. Mm -hmm. Like there's going to need that to be that balance. Um, the other thing that I see not necessarily changing is that so AI will help us with these, you know, technical aspects. Um, it will free us up to think about, you know, larger problems. Um, so those things that are repetitive, AI can help to take care of. Those things that really are more creative, and, and this is my personal perspective, that those things that are creative, um, that require some element of, um, you know, visionary thinking, that is going to still be left to humans. Yeah, spot on. Well, actually, I, I do think that it's time to, to be cautious and be the best custodian that AI can, can ever have, because that will definitely define our future. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like there needs to be, you know, a, a multi, um, 
tiered approach and that, you know, people from different segments of society need to have their voice heard in, in building guardrails when it comes to AI. And what do we think is the, the best um, optimal way for us to use this? And there may be some use cases where, you know, if we come together as a society and say, we never want to use AI for this, um, then, you know, how do we put those guardrails in place to protect our society? an ethical implementation that mm-hmm. the society can can benefit of. Exactly. Yeah. Shanisa, what are the most prominent challenges and opportunities that AI and machine learning are unfolding for the cybersecurity field? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the work that I do, um, and then in cybersecurity in general, where I see AI and ML helping the most is in terms of speed and pattern matching, right? The amount of time that it would take us to look at, you know, large amounts of data and figure out, you know, attackers are, you know, exploiting some vulnerability or this is their attack path. Uh, You know, AI is going to help us with that. Um, The other thing is that in terms of automation, and so instead of having somebody who's manually trying to stop these attacks, um, you know, AI sees these patterns, um, it implements this, you know, this block or this remediation, um, what have you, and, uh, you know, there's this automatic protection that can come into play. Um, And then with machine learning, adapting over time, because just like, uh, you know, attackers will once they're stopped, they're going to you know, try to find another way in. Machine learning can pick up on those new patterns and make sure that our, our AI and our systems adapt to that. It looks like um, an ongoing arm race between defenders and attackers, right? Mm-hmm. Because both parties are being empowered by AI and machine learning. Yeah, and and I'm glad that you called it out that way because one of my concerns is that um, you know some organizations have prevented their cybersecurity team from experimenting exactly. with AI and ML, and to me that's a very dangerous stance to take because attackers are continuously experimenting with they're these taking things. advantage like, absolutely they're taking advantage and you're actually preventing your you know cybersecurity team from being prepared and being able to identify you know some of these new attack patterns and being able to respond efficiently and effectively using ai and ml um, so you know i think that's going to work to our disadvantage the fewer people that can have access to this and experiment with it yeah, absolutely. I want to click on the behavioral analysis point, if you can elaborate it a bit more. So how can AI and machine learning help us analyze behaviors? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the behaviors, um, if I think about an enterprise and somebody who's um, maybe a financial analyst, so they're going to typically log in at a certain point in time, they're uh, behaviors may lead them to, you know, go to one system, spend maybe 30 minutes there, go to another system, download a report, uh, you know, click into Excel and do these things. And so their their patterns of behavior um, are pretty static over time. Mm-hmm. And you know, say their account had been compromised, more than more than likely, the attacker is not going to follow the same rhythm of this individual, right? And so uh, machine learning and AI can pick up on those slight anomalies and say, um, this pattern of behavior for this identity is off by a bit. Um, And so maybe this gives us a low level of confidence that this account has been compromised. Or perhaps um, this account used to log in at 8 a.m. and now it's logging in at 10 p.m every day. So this could be a, a big indicator that this may not be um, 
this may be an attacker's uh, compromise this account. And so now we flag this as a high risk, uh, you know, either an action can be taken to alert the individual or an admin to say something's not right here. Here's the, the pattern that we're seeing. Um, here's the recommended steps that can be taken to remediate this or to investigate further. AI holds a, a great promise in enhancing defense against zero day attack. Uh, in which ways do you think the AI can influence this landscape of, of zero day attacks? Well, there's both a, a positive and a negative side of this. And going back to your question about behavioral um, anomalies, so AI and ML being able to pick up on that uh, could potentially stop a zero day because you see something new that's occurring within your environment that's not normal um, and alerting there. On the flip side, AI can influence in a negative way these zero day attacks. If you think about... Um, the release of you know worm gpt uh, so there's somebody who's built this system to leverage ai to do things that um, are anomalous to you know read emails and do uh, you know phishing campaigns um, so to me this is a type of new zero day attack where um, i feel like these will progress very quickly just because ai is able to pick up on you know patterns of behavior and you know for example maybe there's an email that seems to come from your VP of finance. Um, and in the past, maybe there was misspellings in these emails, these phishing campaigns, um, you know, words were off and you were able to pick up on, this is not the person um, that this claims to be. In the future, you know, AI is gonna be able to mimic those patterns more closely and it's gonna be harder to tell, um, you know, who did this originate from. Also, regarding the adaptive defense, I think AI can dynamically adjust and evolve cybersecurity measures based on the changing threat landscape, providing adaptive um, defense against the zero days attacks and also threat hunting, right? Exactly. Um, but here's where I feel like it's a it's a tag team effort with AI and a human in place. Um, because with some of that adaptive, uh, yes, AI is going to pick up on, on patterns, on um, behavioral anomalies, but you also need that visionary thinking from the human side to say, what do we think could be next here? And the difference between us and AI is that people are wise and AI is not yet wise, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And there's a level of false positives, right? Um, so when you have those false positives or those false negatives, uh, you need an element of uh, you know human assessment in some of those cases. Outstanding. Shainis, I was so lovely having you today. Thank you so much for your time and the great insights you shared. It was an absolute pleasure. And I hope we'll have you again in the next episodes. Yeah, thank you so much for the time and for the, the great questions, thought-provoking questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cyberstar Talks podcast. If you like what you heard, please follow us, leave a review and tune in monthly for the upcoming episodes.